Oh man, some good stuff. I'm going to set that there. Huh. It was so good, we're going to do it again. It is so good to be with you this morning. A uh, number of mixed emotions. Um, all good. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just uh, um, uh, we haven't been here the last couple Sundays because we've had a couple weddings, one with Lexi and Jonathan that I'm so excited about, and uh, another one last week we had to go to Arizona, and we were at a, a cousin's wedding and celebrating with them as well. And so just being gone for two Sundays, I've missed my family, this family. It's good to be back. And um, uh, I'm excited to be able to uh, share um, what I, I believe uh, God has put in my heart to, to share with you. Um, at the same time, I'm also uh, struggling just, you know, some uh, painful things. Uh, I, I see my brother Harry here, and I know he's hurting. And um, I know a number of other people who are here who are struggling with other uh, issues in their life. And um, to be honest with you, that's kind of, um, as I've been wrestling through with these different things, a good thing, but um, you know, uh, it's just kind of hit me when you give your daughter away. And uh, I'm excited, couldn't be more excited. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that when um, uh, you know you're giving your daughter away to a godly man and someone who, on a regular basis, uh, leads me and all of us in worship. Excited and thrilled. But there's a part of me as a father that's just kind of like, she's not mine anymore. And so it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know what? Again, it's not sadness like, oh, no, you know, upset. It's, it's a good sadness. It's a good sadness. But as I've been wrestling through the last few weeks of what I was going to share uh, today, um, this is where it, it kind of get an insight into where I'm at. All right? So uh, if I were to ask you to picture in your mind an image of a wilderness... What would come to your mind? Just, just try to get a picture of that for a second. For some, it might be uh, maybe looking down from the Rocky Mountains. Or maybe if you've ever been to Yellowstone and you've been able to look across that expanse and you just go, oh, man, how majestic. Or maybe uh, someplace out in so far out, a place like Alaska, where hardly anybody's been at. Maybe that's your picture of, of a wilderness. Uh, for some, you might think of a place more desolate, maybe like the Mojave Desert or Death Valley or as I just drove it last week, that wonderful piece of property in between Blythe and Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> oh, gorgeous, beautiful. Woo, love that drive. No, I don't. Maybe you don't picture destination at all. Maybe uh, you pictured your current circumstances and you just feel lost. Lost relationally. 
financially, directionally, or even spiritually. Maybe you feel like Forrest Gump when he started running from coast to coast just because he just didn't know what else to do. I've been there. When I was uh, out of a job for six months, a little over six years ago, I felt like I was in the wilderness. I was scared. I was questioning. I was anxious. I was frustrated. I didn't know where I was going or where I would end up. Lucky you guys, right? Please say that. Okay. But uh, today's message is entitled, Wandering in the Wilderness. We're in the book of Numbers. It's the fourth book uh, of the Old Testament, and so I want to encourage you to go ahead and, if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, there's one located in a seat in front of you or somewhere down that row and ask if someone will hand it to you. Uh, because uh, I'd really like you to be following along, if you wouldn't mind, because I'm going to be going all over the place in there. Um, The English title, we get that from this word, arithmoi, okay? So you can think about numbers, and if you just think about that, that, that makes this book almost like, Super thrilling, right? Oh boy, math. Woohoo! Just what we want to do. Um, the Septuagint scholars who then chose this title, uh, um, they chose it because of the two censuses. Big censuses in this book. And, and we saw it in there on, on the video. And I, I don't know about you guys, I've loved these videos. Um, they, they just uh, bring to light so many things in such a short amount of time. So gifted. I, I, I hope I can just somehow do it justice today. But uh, the two censuses recorded in, in chapters 1 through 4 and then again in, in chapter 26 at the end of the book. And these numberings of the people took place at the beginning and end of the wilderness wanderings. And they, they frame the contents of numbers. However, today, uh, the title the Jews used in their Hebrew Old Testament for this book, it comes from the fifth word in the book of Hebrew, or in this book in the Hebrew text. And I'm not going to tell you the Hebrew word because I don't know Hebrew. I mean, I can read it. But that fifth word translates in the wilderness. So if you are Jewish and you're reading your Torah, your Pentateuch, you're seeing this book title as in the wilderness. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's where, that's where we're going today. That's where we're going to be at. It's appropriate since, since the Israelites spent so much of their time, most of it was covered in this narrative in the book of Numbers or in the book of In the Wilderness, right there in the wilderness. So you could say the title is Wandering in the Book of Numbers, but I prefer Wandering in the wilderness. Now I'd like to show you a quick outline um, just because it helps me visually and maybe for some of you it helps you as well and uh, uh, I hope it's going to clarify what you saw in the video even 
and uh, we're going to uh, just spend some time really quickly looking at this. First, the outline that I've chosen comes from a guy, Thomas Constable. And he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And man, he is a scholar. And I just so appreciate all of his work and efforts, particularly when it comes to the Old Testament, that I just went, oh, I saw this and this is so good. So he breaks down the outline of the book of Numbers into two main sections. The first, um, and you know what? Man, did I put too small of a text on there. Woo! But that's okay. Good thing I'm flying through it and you're not going to be taking notes on it. But um, the first is the experience of the older generation in the wilderness in, in chapters 1 through 25. And then he breaks that down and then in the first 10 chapters he shares about preparations for entering the promised land from the south. And the first census was taken and the organization of the people by tribes and the arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle. And then in chapter 3, they see, we could read about the role of the Levites. And then the commands and rituals that needed to be observed because last week, as Rick did such a great job, God is holy. And he challenged us with the hole in our holiness. God doesn't have a hole. And so not only in the book of Leviticus, but also here in Numbers, he's continuing to show his holiness, who he is, and who he desires his people to be. And then in chapter 6, there's a Nazarite instruction if you wanted to make a vow and set yourself apart. Chapter 7, there's the dedication of the tabernacle. Chapter 8, there's setting up of the lamps and, and all the details that come with that. And then on the 14th day of the first month of the second year. So they're just barely into their second year after they've left Egypt. They were to celebrate Passover. And then we can see in chapter 9, verses 15 through 23, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire that rested over the tabernacle at night. So in chapter 10, verse 13, is when they, they set out and they take off. Well, in chapters 11 through 25, we see the rebellion and judgment of an unbelieving generation. There's a cycle of rebellion and atonement in chapters 11 through 20. And then there's the climax of rebellion, hope, and, and the, the end of dying in chapters 21 through 25. And we come to the second division of this book of Numbers, of these 36 chapters. And, and these last 11 chapters, chapters 26 through 36, focus on the prospects of the younger generation in the land. So we see that, that as we're looking at the second division of the book, there's preparations for entering the promised land from the east now instead of from the south originally. And there was a second census taken in chapter 26, and there was provisions and commands to observe in preparation for entering the land in chapters 27 through 30. And then there's a reprisal against Midian and the settlement of the Transjordanian tribes. Which, by the way, I just want to encourage you to be remembering Rita Thomas in prayer. Because she's over there. In that neck of the woods. Well, back to our outline. Next comes uh, the warning and encouragement of the younger generation. 
and there's a review of the journey from Egypt. And man, when you read that in chapter 33, verses 1 through 49, wow, you start seeing they really went a lot of places. Now, understand this. It's 40 years, or actually like 38 years, 39 years, because they haven't entered in yet. But they've been all over the place. A trip that was only supposed to take them weeks ended up 40 years. And then finally, as we close in numbers, there's the anticipation. The anticipation of being able to enter into the promised land. Now in this, I want to point out some things that I thought were pretty significant to notice. In the first section of the book, there's a contrast with the older generation and then in the second part with the younger generation. My, my words are so small and I don't even know. I, I thought my, my coloring went with it. But oh well. So in one, if you can read that, the older generation. Two, the second part of the book, there's the younger generation. And then also, uh, I want you to notice the first time that they were to enter the promised land, which included everybody, it was to be from the south, coming up from Mount Sinai and going through all the different wildernesses, the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of Sin, the, the wilderness of Sinai. Now, only the younger generation will be entering from the east. There was two different censuses taken. The first census and the organization of the people. And then the second census. And those were taken for organization, for administration, as well as for military strategy. In both instances, in the first part of the book and in the second part of the book, the people were given commands and rituals to observe. Now, I don't know if, if you're like me, but i got to tell you, our, our family has struggled reading through Leviticus. And uh, some of the early part of Numbers is a struggle too, right? Because of the rituals and, and because it seems like it's just repeating itself and repeating itself in some of the instances, Right? But these are all so important. God did not want his people to miss it. That's one of the things that I miss when we're just kind of like plowing through sometimes. Oh my goodness, the repetitiveness of this. Obviously, he wanted them to get it. And then finally, uh, where we saw rebellion and judgment of the older generation, that unbelieving generation. Now we get to see the warning and encouragement of the younger generation. So I just want you to know, um, I've highlighted a section, and hopefully this will show. Cindy, will this next one show? It's not showing. Doggone. Okay. But I want you to look under, under Roman numeral one, if you can see it, and then B. The Rebellion and Judgment of the Unbelieving Generation, chapters 11 through 25. That's where I'm going to be looking at today. There's so much in here. Trust me, boy, I had a hard time um, trying to narrow it down. 
But that's where I'm going to be focusing in on the cycle of rebellion, atonement, and death, and the climax of rebellion, hope, and the end of dying. It's the time right after they left Sinai and were on their way to the promised land. Now, I want to encourage you, go ahead and open up your, your maps. Open up your road maps. So I put it on up there because, you know, as you open up on that, um, I wanted you to see that. I want you to focus your attention on this center part. And, uh, wow, if it didn't work before this, it's probably not going to work now. I even, I even highlighted. I thought I was so proud. Of, oh, look at that. Look at that. Trying to drag and scroll that little thing for a 56-year-old man was not easy. But that's the section where we're, you know, we're just going to be kind of taking some, some synopsises of and, and some focus on, and uh, that, that neon green, uh, I tried to circle for you, and it's directly beneath that yellow section, which is kind of hard to see, um, and that's that rebellion in the wilderness that, that uh, the uh, video shared about, and right below that, it talked about the line which God brings judgment and shows mercy. Please don't miss that. They go hand in hand. So um, I hope you've been enjoying having these. Um, a, a lot of families, thank you, a lot of families have been using them with their devotionals and they can kind of point to it like the different stories that they've been reading as a family or listening to if they're listening to the word spoken. And, and you know, some people have uh, laminated them and they use them as placemats so that way they can talk about it for the week. You know, whatever. So... Um, uh, I want to make sure that we take advantage uh, of being able to use that. And, and Tim Mackey, as well as in my uh, Life Application Bible uh, study notes, they, they talked about seven rebellions. And uh, once the people leave Sinai in Numbers 10, things just go really, really bad. Every story to follow begins with a moment of Israelite insurrection. The people complain or rebel or grumble. And I've combined some of these highlights uh, that I read from, from Tim Mackey in the study notes for us to look at. Number one, uh, from Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. You can turn there in your Bibles. Um, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. So notice, uh, again, if you can see it, uh, some of those words complained. And, and then it talks about in the rabble, among them had greedy desires in verse 4. Those are highlighted to kind of see some of the commonalities that um, they all had. In verse 4, the rabble with them began to crave other food. They had greedy desires. And it says, and again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Wah, wah, wah. I almost wanted to call this wang in the wilderness. But I didn't know how to spell it. So, and then they go on in verse 5 of Numbers 11. It says, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers and melons and leeks. Can you just see them like, oh, and their mouth's watering, and they're just getting more and more like, oh, and the onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Do you know what manna means? 
It means, what is it? That's what it means. They had no idea. And so they, they, they uh, what is this manna? What is it? Because that was something, it's not produced anywhere on this earth. God made that. It's special. And he made that six days a week for 40 years. God provided. He gave them nourishment, whether they liked it or not. And then another rebellion in, in chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, and Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. This is his brother and sister. These are his co-leaders. Verse 1 says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. Wow. For he had married a Cushite. Another instance of racism. They're ticked off just because of who he was married to. Verse 2, it says, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? I mean, can you just see it? Here are leaders, let alone brother and sister, and they're just having a gripe session. And it says at the end of verse 2, And the Lord heard this. That's not a good thing. Another rebellion in, in uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 2. It says, uh, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept out loud. And then further on it says in verse 2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. Wah, 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 wah. Or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us all fall by the sword? Wow. Seriously? He's been leading them the entire time. He's led them out of slavery to give them the promised land, the choicest place on the face of the earth. And they just keep reverting back. I was telling a couple people this week, I said, you know what? As I'm preparing for this, I'm really, really frustrated. And I said, I just can't understand how these people would, would do this time and time again. And then I stopped and I said, and yet, to be honest with you, I'm really, really frustrated at myself because I do the same exact thing. Seeing the, the Israelites sin, all of a sudden, it, it went me from going, yeah, you guys are, wow, what losers, to seeing me and going, wow, how can I fall in that same kind of trap? Well, when you're in the wilderness, things get a little uh, messed up. Another rebellion, Korah, oh boy, this guy, whoo, and Korah uh, uh, with Dathan and Abiram, 
And I've got to read this one to you more than just verses 1 through 3 because I want you to get the, the fuller context. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and the son of Peleth, become insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders. So here, here we are in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. You've got some leaders who are, who are upset. It's not just the common people anymore. It's people who are recognized, well-known community leaders is what the word says who had been appointed members of this council. Verse 3 says, They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, even or every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Oh, oh man. Watch out. Because here's what happens uh, about 17 verses later. Verses 20 through 33. Verse 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, Oh God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will then the Lord, uh, will uh, you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Verse 25. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then as we keep reading, verse 28, then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was m not my idea. And he throws out a little thing for the, uh, all the people to understand, kind of like a gauntlet. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, <laughs> And the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them. And they go down alive into the realm of the dead. Then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Here's the very next verse. As soon as he finished saying all of this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. Verse 33, they went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Whoa! And that's some powerful stuff. And even after that had just happened, that had just happened, we read 10 verses later, in that same chapter. The next day, right after this all happened in front of all of them, it says the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You've killed the Lord's people, they said. Incredible. 
I mean, some people never learn, right? They never learn. Well, and, and then in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 3, um, the people quarreled with Moses. And it was the first month the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. And there, Miriam, Moses' sister, died and was buried. And there was no water, and so it says, and the people gathered in opposition, and they quarreled with Moses. There's no water to drink. And then finally, the bronze snake. In chapter 21, verses 4 and 5 say this. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Time and time and time again, they keep repeating this. There's no bread, there's no water. And then get this, and we detest this miserable food. Man, that's a lot of angry people, a lot of grumpy people. Each story highlights a different type of rebellion and starts for different kinds of reasons. And you can see uh, now from each reference, uh, I want to be able to show you and hopefully, you know, there's a reference and a complaint and the sin and then the results from that. Chapter 11, verse 1, about the complaint is about the hardships. It's too tough. There's sin. And as, as I read these, see if you see yourself in your own situations, in your own circumstances, with where you're at in life right now. Obviously, we're not out in the actual wilderness, but we are each probably wrestling with a different wilderness in our own hearts. The sin is they complained about their problems instead of praying to God about them. And the result, thousands of people were destroyed when God sent a plague a fire to punish them. In, in verse 4, the complaint was about a lack of meat. They lusted after other things that they didn't have. And the result, God sent quail, but as the people began to eat, God struck them with a plague that killed many. There was so much quail, three feet high, as far outside of the camp as you could possibly go. And I'm thinking, man, that God was so upset and frustrated, he gave him some bad bird. And then in chapter 14, the complaint about being stuck in the desert, the sin, they openly rebelled against God's leaders and failed to trust in his promises, God's promises, not the leader's promises. Make sure we see that. Because God is always the hero. God is always the one we look to. The leaders aren't. The leaders are just who God chooses to help communicate. Their sin, they openly rebelled against God's leaders and failed to trust God's promises. And as a result, all who complained were not allowed to enter the promised land, being doomed to wander in the desert until they died. Man, I kept thinking about my own family as I was reading this. If I wasn't Joshua or Caleb, 
the only two of the 12 spies who are allowed to enter into the promised land, I would be wandering in that wilderness until I died. God declared that. It might seem harsh, but remember, we have a holy God. We might struggle with, oh, well, I know that was, a, that was, that was, that was sin, I know, but it, it wasn't that bad compared to others. No, God doesn't have that standard. He doesn't have that standard at all. In chapter 16, the complaint was about Moses and Aaron's authority and leadership. And the sin was they, they were greedy for more power and authority. Korah and all those people and those 250 leaders, community leaders, hey, you're not the only ones who are holy. We are too, and we're leaders, so hey, we're, we're doing this too. We're going to get our part. Reminds me of just modern-day politicians. But the result, man, now this one. The families, friends, and possessions, even the possessions of these men were swallowed up by the earth. And then later on we find in that story that fire burned up the other 250 rebels. Their complaint in verse 41, that Moses and Aaron caused the deaths of Korah and his conspirators. That sin was they blamed others for their own troubles. They blamed others for their own troubles. And the result was God began to destroy Israel with a plague. Moses and Aaron made atonement for the people, but 14,700 people were killed. And then in chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, uh, the complaint, again, about a lack of water, a lack of resources, the sin they refused to believe that God would provide as he had promised. And the result was Moses sinned along with the people. For this he was banned from entering the promised land. And I got to tell you, I, I, I have struggled with this. If it wasn't because it was all about God's glory and God being seen as the provider and the giver, I would think Moses got a raw deal. I mean, could any of you have put up with all of that for all of that time? And he has an instance in Scripture where God tells him to speak to the rock. And in Moses' anger and frustration, not at God, but with the people, because of their complaining, he just, ah, and he strikes the rock twice. Again, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, come on, God. Is, I mean, that, that's kind of so little compared to everything else. But see, God will not share his glory. He instructed Moses to speak to it so that the people would see from the spoken word that God would bring this about. And when Moses struck it, that would take glory away from God, and the people would think, oh, wow, look what Moses did. And because of that, this poor leader never got the opportunity to walk in the promised land. God did let him see it, but he didn't get to walk it. And then finally in chapter 21, verse 5, 
The complaint that God and Moses brought them into the desert and that sin failed to recognize that their problems were brought on by their own disobedience. So what did God do? He sent venomous snakes that killed many people and seriously injured many others. After we reading this, we might think God's, God's a, a little harsh, right? I mean, 14,700 people died from a plague. Many people died from snake bites. Rebels were swallowed up by the earth and fire burned another 250 others. And then we just kind of look at that and we just go, wow. There's a lot of, looks kind of tough. Boy, God. So therefore, sometimes people think, man, yeah, God's just a hard nose. He just can't wait to bring the hammer down. But it's not true. Because throughout all of this time, he continues to show his faithfulness. He continues to show his mercy. He continues to show, I've made a covenant to you and I'm going to fulfill it. No matter how rebellious you get, I love you. And I love you enough to even let you have what you think you want, what you think is better. Isn't that what he did with Adam and Eve? Eat from any fruit, just not from here. What do they do? God loved them enough to try to let them know, man, all of this is for you. This one, no. And they chose, they chose poorly. And I think, wow, this is, this is harsh. So I come back. And what's in your wilderness? The Israelites couldn't see God even though he was right there with them, as plain as a pillar of cloud and, and a pillar of fire. It's easy to think how horrible they were, right? Or more like ignorant or, or even dense or just hard-headed. But aren't we just like them? Don't we miss God just like they did? And yet here it is. The book of Numbers drips with Jesus everywhere. So as you continue reading it this week, don't miss Jesus. Numbers chapter 21 verses 4 through 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea uh, to, go with, to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on their way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest the miserable food. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned. They recognized it. We sinned and we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses uh, made a bronze snake and put it on the pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The people of Israel had a tendency to have short memories. When they were hungry or thirsty, they forgot that God had provided food and water in the past. 
When they learned of their strong enemies, they forgot that God had delivered them from Egypt with no need for an army. And in chapter 21, the people of Israel began to loathe the miraculous manna and started to complain once again about their food. In previous, uh, previous occurrences, God uh, responded to complaints with miraculous provisions in Exodus 15 uh, and, and in Exodus chapter 16. However, on this occasion, God responded with a miraculous judgment. Venomous snakes. The judgment remained even after the people of Israel realized their sin. And rather than removing the venomous snakes, God commanded Moses to fashion a bronze snake. Moses then placed the snake on a pole, and all Israel gathered before the snake to receive healing. And, and though Israel had a tendency to forget God's provisions, the people did not soon forget how they were healed from the snake. Sometimes we need examples. They needed examples to remind them that God is faithful. Israel uh, was not unique in this tendency to forget God's past actions and seek comfort elsewhere. Just like the, the Israel's sin in this chapter 21 had consequences, everyone's sin has consequences. Yours and mine has consequences. And the result is death and separation from God. You can say it's harsh. You can say it's not fair. You can complain all you want. But you don't stand a chance against a holy God who demands nothing less than us giving him our best. These consequences don't disappear when people realize their sin, just as God did not simply remove the snakes when Israel repented. But however, I want you to see this, Jesus stated that he too would be lifted up as Moses lifted up the, the bronze snakes. In John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, here's Jesus speaking. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Amen. That eternal life in him, that's our promised land. We have assurance of that when we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. Later on in John chapter 12, he says this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. Jesus intercedes on behalf of his people and he made the payment for their sin your sin, my sin, their sin, everybody's sin on the cross. In order for people to be healed from the sting of sin and death, they must first draw near and look on Jesus in faith, just as the people of Israel drew near and looked upon the snake to be healed. When life is difficult, people need reminders, right? That God is active. And he is, is riding the world of the effects of sin. Jesus is that reminder. He's already healed his people from the sting of, of sin. 
just as that bronze snake healed the people of Israel from the bites of snakes. This book, like all of the Old Testament, it stands as a testimony to God's promise to deliver his people from the consequences of sin. Nothing can stop God's plan, not even human sin. His grace is sufficient to lead his people lovingly and into his presence, then, now, and forever. Now, many of the Israelites didn't make it to the promised land, but Jesus will take you to the other promised land. It doesn't matter how battered or bruised you are. It doesn't matter what your wilderness looks like. His love and faithfulness never change or stop. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for just the fact of your character and who you are. And no matter how badly we can have days or even weeks or months or years, God, your love never ends. Your holiness never changes. You never compromise either of those. So Lord, in our struggles or in our victories, may our victories be in Jesus. In our struggles, may we look to Jesus who is our victor, who has shown us and provided us the way to the promised land. It's in his name I pray. Amen.